Hello and welcome to Lost in Sci-Fi and Fantasy. I'm your host, Leo, and this week we are talking about Dune. Specifically, Dune the book. The original book from the 1960s. Let me get the proper copyright date for that real quick for you. Uh, mm -mm -mm. 1965. What fun. Before we even get started, I do want to give a quick apology for anything I might forget. It's a fucking long book. This book is 794 pages, and it's a complicated, long story. I mean, for the most part, it's relatively easy to follow, but it's thick. It's thick. In fact, it has four appendices in the back of it, as well as a glossary, cartographic notes, a map, and then an afterword by the author's son, Brian Herbert. So yeah, this, this book is at least as the cover of my version says, a science fiction, sorry, it says science fiction supreme masterpiece, Dune. Would I call it that? I mean, it's not bad, especially for the time it came out. Like, that's pretty, pretty good. And overall, like, the story is pretty good. Though, around the halfway point, it kind of starts to become a bit of a jumbled mess, where it just kind of starts jumping and lurching and and then it's like, it's done. We're, we're good. But we'll, we'll get into that as as we get going. So, my history with Dune is a bit of a choppy one. It is, again, one of those things where I looked upon it with mystery of like, ooh, what is that like? It's a big book. It's a book that if you got it in hardback, you could probably kill someone with it. Because it's, it's one of those big books. At, at first, I was actually... I got it because I was curious. You know, you, you hear of the, the fame and whatnot around Dune. There's the the weird 80s adaptation, then there was a TV movie adaptation, and now there's the uh, Denis Villeneuve uh, version that is getting its sequel, the second part of it, uh, in just a couple weeks. I'm looking forward to that very much. And yes, we will be talking about Dune for the next three weeks. We'll be talking about Dune the book this week, Dune part one next week, and Dune part two the week after that. We're not touching the 80s Dune, at least for now, because that one is that one is weird. Anywho, so it was a curiosity for me. Then after I got the book, it just kind of sat around because it, it's intimidating, especially for someone who at the time couldn't read very fast. Like my my reading speed was fucking slow. Hell, even when I timed myself reading a page, because the way I estimate how long it'll take me to read a book is I I find the first full page. It goes from, it starts on, starts at the top, ends at the bottom. Indent at top, period at bottom. I find the first page like that, and I read it while timing myself. Then I multiply it by the number of pages, divide that by 60, and that gives me the estimated time it'll take me. And it's actually pretty accurate. You know, plus minus, like, maybe an hour. My time, my estimated time, was 33 hours and 5 minutes for this behemoth of a book. And that's partially because it is quite dense like it it goes through a lot but i was actually very pleasantly surprised as i was reading it that even the slower parts i was able to kind of work my way through like as long as you kind of brush off some of the some of the like language of the book as and just kind of go with the flow of the book you know you're able to kind of settle into the to the witty you know conversations that they have and the little jabs and whatnot that they they give each other it's pretty fun but yes so i finally decided to tackle this book 
specifically for this podcast in preparation for the second part of the movie. Plus, I wanted to finally know what was in the book. Because you hear a ton of like things, like you could watch the Lawson adaptation and whatnot on it. But you don't get the full picture unless you've actually read the book. And boy, howdy, is there a lot to this book. So the book is split into three sections. Now, it's kind of more split into two, but it, it it's complicated. So it is split into three books, Dune, Moadib, and The Prophet. Dune kind of follows the Atreides family's journey to Dune, and then their fall. Moadib follows Paul and Jessica's journey through the desert, and they're kind of bringing in or settling into the the Fremen lifestyle. Then the prophet is just the end of the book. It's It skips over so much content just to get to the end. So much stuff. The time skip between the end of Moadib and the beginning of Prophet is two years. And then it's implied that between that and the eventual end of the book, it's been an additional two years. So it's, it's that smaller section of the end of the book, about 200 or so pages, is four years, while the first two sections of the book is like six months at best. Technically, the second part of the book is like a couple weeks, because it, it never really states. Time is weird in this book. Anywho, let's go ahead and start diving into the story. So we follow, for the most part, Paul Atreides. He has been given a terrible purpose that he doesn't know what it is yet. He, he doesn't know what the terrible purpose is. He wakes up after having a bit of a dream to find that he must go through the Gom Jabbar, where he must stick his hand into a box and not move, for if he moves, he shall be stuck with the Gom Jabbar and poisoned, killed on the spot. He is being tested by the Reverend Mother to see if he is human. The This test is mostly given to the Bene Gesserit. The Bene Gesserit are a sect of people that, like, they're a... They're a group of people made up entirely of women who their whole deal is like selective breeding. So they will mix and match people around because their goal is to create the Quasax Haderach, I think is what they're after. They're, they're trying to get the Quasax Haderach, which is supposed to be like the perfect blend of like DNA and breed, uh, breeding and up bringing and whatnot and specifically is supposed to be a male Bene Gesserit essentially and that, that's kind of the whole thing now he was born out of sequence he he wasn't supposed to be born he was uh, his mother Jessica was ordered specifically by the reverend mother to give birth to a girl but her husband well hus husband she is not actually married to him she is his lady, uh, or concubine, but, and he doesn't marry her because of political reasons, he needs to look like he is available in order to have the potential of being wed off to one of the other houses. That's that, okay. So, he was not supposed to be born, she gave birth to a, a boy because that's what 
Duke Leto wanted. So she did it out of love and bore a son. The Bene Gesserit believe that she did it because she felt that she could be the one, the prophesized to give birth to the Quasex Haderach. But they're not sure. So they give him the test to see if he's human, and he passes. Success. But whoa, tis also near-ish moving day as the Atreides family is packing up and moving away from Caladan to Arrakis, Dune, the desert planet. So Arrakis, Dune, the desert planet, is a desert planet that is a highly strategic point in this universe. It is where spice, the spice melange, comes from, which is a drug, essentially. It is a drug that gives one a heightened sense of connection and some the slight ability to see a bit into the future. And it is a highly crucial thing. And the Atreides family has been given stewardship over Dune. Why? They don't fully know. They feel that maybe it's a thing. It's almost certainly a trap. Because for the past, I think, 50 or 70 years, it has been under the stewardship of the Baron Harkonnen and the Harkonnen family. The rivals of the Atreides family. Basically, some squabble happened, like, centuries ago, and it's one of those things that's kind of stuck. It has been around for ages, so now it's been a blood feud. So they sense it's probably a trap, but they have been given a direct order from the Emperor and must comply. Else, they become a renegade house, but they can't quite do that, so they just kind of go with it. They get there, they move in, things are seeming okay, but hark, there be traps about. They feel that they were, they did like a clean scan of the place, but not quite, as the son, Paul, does end up falling foul of a potential trap. A hunter-seeker, which is a tiny little like drone thing that flies around the sky, like flies around and shoots towards any kind of movement. He's able to catch and disable this but it sends everyone into a fervor to figure out who set the trap. Because it could only be controlled by someone nearby. So there's a traitor afoot. Now we pause for a second, because a little bit earlier, this entire plan was actually laid out. They, they knew, like, we as the reader knew what was happening, because we had a whole scene where the Baron Harkonnen literally, literally lays out his entire plan. He sets out who's the you, you know who the traitor is going in, you know what his plan is going in, and you know that his whole idea is layers upon layers upon layers. His idea is basically set them up, ooh, this, then replace them with a different person, potentially the old one, but his plan kind of shifts a little bit as time goes on. And then eventually he wanted to put his nephew Thade on the throne. It, it's a convoluted plan. But we are told the plan very early on, when we're introduced to the villain of the Baron Harkonnen. So after the near-death experience, Paul goes to hang out with his father to see how spice operations are run. Well, at the order of his father, after they had a bit of a meeting first, I believe. Yeah, I think they had a meeting first, then eventually they went to do the, the spice stuff. Again, order of the early stuff's going to be a little bit muddled they go see what happens 
but something's not quite right. The Ornithomper, Ornithopper, Thomper, basically the ship that's supposed to come in and pick up the spice factory and get it out of the way of a potential worm is nowhere to be seen. So the Duke swoops in, makes a heroic rescue of the workers, and gets the fuck out. Then a message is intercepted, trying to pin the assassination attempt on Paul as being Lady Jessica's idea. Basically trying to shift blame away from the actual uh, traitor, Yue, over to Jessica. And the reason that Yue, who is supposed to be a trained doctor, like a conditioned doctor, so that a royal-ready conditioned doctor, which is essentially they are conditioned by the emperor in order to not be able to harm royalty at all. But there is a way to break the conditioning, and that way to break the conditioning is kidnap and torture a loved one and force them into service. That's what they did with uh, Yue, dangling the potential of his wife being alive. With this, Yue wants to get his revenge, but in order to get close to the Baron Harkonnen, he must betray the Atreides and use Duke Leto as his weapon. Well, the Duke, when he gets this news of Lady Jessica being the potential traitor, he dismisses it at hand, but set dates to Paul that everyone must know, must believe that he suspects her to try and draw out the true culprit, even her. He tells this to Paul because he states that if something were to happen to him, he wants him to let his mother know that he never, for a moment, suspected her and that he had always loved her. So he ends up putting her on watch. There's a lovely dinner scene where there's a lot of nice tension and whatnot. Then there's a whole another tense scene where Duncan Idaho comes in drunk, kind of spilling the beans that she is the suspected traitor. So she gets the the mentat Thufer Hawat gets him and like questions him as to like why she is suspected as the traitor and whatnot that she shouldn't be. And just as they're about to get like to an understanding and whatnot. And just as the Duke is ready to drop the pretense, because, you know, it's gotten a bit out of hand, the attack happens. The Duke Leto is knocked unconscious, and one of his teeth is replaced with a poison tooth so that he can try and kill the Baron Harkonnen. Then Paul and Jessica are spirited away by guards, as the original in the original plan from the Baron, the original plan was that the Baron would get Paul, and... Jessica was to go to his, to Baron's Mentat, but the plan shifted because they were told of how powerful they are both in the voice and the Bene Gesserit ways. So the Baron convinces his Mentat to drop the Lady Jessica in favor of taking over the Dukedom of Arrakis, to which the Mentat accepts. So they are both taken away to be left in the desert to be eaten by worms. But this was actually Yue's way of saving them. They're taken away and he had snuck a survival kit and whatnot onto the to the thwopper, thopper, or whatever it's called, as they're taken away. They find this, are able to defeat their captors, and start their trek through the desert. 
Meanwhile, with Duke Leto and the Baron, Duke Leto wakes up in a bit of a stupor, vaguely remembers the tooth, and as he kind of comes to, he remembers, ah yeah, I am already dead. So I must try to kill the Baron Harkonnen here and now. And he almost does it. He ends up killing the Mentat, I believe his name's Peter. He also kills the guard captain, and he almost gets the Baron, but the Baron had his shield up in this universe. There's these personal shields that you can wear that pretty much make combat revert back to, like, knives and swords. And the reason for that is that the the weapons that are commonplace are las guns now. And if you use a las gun on a shielded person, both the person who shot and the person wearing the shield will die. So it's kind of a one-for-one one trade, which is not good. But yeah, so he had a shield on, but, like, low enough to just kind of sift some particles through, making it to where, like, the poison wasn't able to quite penetrate the shield, and he had enough time to escape. Thus ends the life of Duke Leto. Paul and Jessica wander through the desert for a bit. As they wander, they eventually are found by Duncan Idaho. They camp for a bit, assume that, because he, he'd left and assumed that he probably died, so they wander for a bit more. Eventually, uh, Duncan Idaho does come back for them, along with the planetologist, which I didn't really mention yet, but he doesn't play that much of a part. They are saved by them, but where they hid, which was on a ecological laboratory, where they were testing about bringing plant life to, to, to Arrakis, they go there, that gets attacked, Duncan Idaho dies, the planetologist, he is stripped and forced to walk through the desert without a still suit. Still suits are a full body suit that recycles all of your body's moisture as much as possible to where you only lose about, if used properly, a thimble full a day. Which is very efficient, but very confusing as to how it actually works. Because when described what happens when they strip off the still suit, because the still suit is supposed to recycle moisture from all of your waste. Like, all of it. But when they take off the still suit, it is described that they do wear, like, the the Fremen use, like, um, loincloths or whatnot. And, like, the Atreides, at least Paul, has, like, fighting shorts or whatnot under. So, I'm just saying. Anywho. So they, they are then set to, once again, wander through the desert. Until they do, eventually, after a few scares, come across... The Fremen. Now, something I did forget to mention, is immediately after the Duke's death, Paul is kind of awakened to the potential of his terrible purpose. Revenge. He seeks revenge. But he does not know exactly how to go about it. He sees many potentials ahead. Because now he can see the future a bit. He, he had visions before. It's called his prescience. But before, they were kind of vague illusions to things that will probably happen but they aren't entirely sure how or why now it's he full-on sees like pathways and ways to go but it's kind of clouded as he's close like the immediate future around him's a bit clouded but he sees something in the distance and what he sees is jihad a religious war where he is the prophet 
the the chosen one essentially the martyr potential martyr and he decides that he wants to avoid that at all cost but he does still want revenge and his main choice is that they of survival is to get to the fremen well they eventually come across the fremen there's some tensions as the fremen are trying to decide what to do with the two of them eventually deciding after a scuffle to take them in they slowly learn the fremen ways paul falls in love with chani who is the planetologist's daughter he also ends up getting into a fight ends up killing a guy and he ends up inheriting that guy's family and house essentially slowly but surely paul and his mother kind of ingratiate themselves into the the fremen's life by taking up the roles of the prophesized her the new reverend mother and him as the prophesized son of said reverend mother and as things go on he gets more and more uh, legendary and issues start to continue to grow as he sees that well he kind of eventually is seeing more and more that the jihad is almost inevitable and it by the end of the book he realizes that yeah it's inevitable the things that were after about two years with the fremen he has a son that he has named leto the second and the fremen have been kind of divided and been doing guerrilla tactics fighting a bit of a small war but paul paul's now become a bit of a leader and there's some debate amongst the younger of the fremen that if paul were to succeed and become a sand rider that he should challenge the leader silgar take over properly as leader they're able to avoid a fight paul convinces him that hey with my what my plan is like i'm gonna need you alive to keep running things because i'm not gonna be able to run specifically this like group of fremen or even technically all of the fremen because my plan which is told relatively early like after immediately after like the fall of house atreides his his plan is i'm gonna marry the emperor's daughter and i'm gonna become the emperor come hell or high water is essentially his plan and, and then there's other other twists that are also revealed at the same time but we'll get to that later so after this it pretty much becomes a mad dash to the end of the book as we follow some characters in the build-up and then eventual release of the, the final battle this is where it skips an additional two years like the entirety of the war gets skipped like paul pretty much turns is like okay we're gonna we're gonna we have to we can't go back now sadly it's time to war baby and then it like jump cuts and it's like okay now we just have this one place to take out and then the war is over <laughs> that's that's that that's also after like he gets knocked out for three weeks but he does eventually fight through after he gets the terrible news that his son was killed in a raid on one of the Sikhs. so he pretty much steamrolls the emperor and his sadhakar fights they demands the emperor's daughter hand in marriage and then the book ends that 
that's the book. <laughs> now, of course, I skipped over a lot of the the subtleties and whatnot, but that is the general story of, of the book. A very interesting, very, like, dense beginning that you're like, yeah, and then it just kind of mad dash to the end. Battles? What battles? War? What war? You don't need to see this. War. But throughout the book, we are kind of shown a lot of neat subtleties, which I find very interesting. So, again, the book uh, can be very nice and subtle about how it introduces certain things, and then it, it kind of tells tells you more as time goes on, which is, again, very cool. But at the other, other hand, it just is like, um, here you go, here you go, here you go, here you go, and then we'll just kind of roll with it from there. You know, like at the beginning of the book, it says, here's the plan, and then we cut to the uh, Duke Leto, and it's like, we pretty much know what their plan is, though they get a few details wrong, and then the plan is uh, executed. So th that's the beginning of the book. Then immediately after that, we're told a bunch of twists. So this is where we're properly told about, like, the Bene Gesserit breeding thing. We're told Jessica's heritage as it was left as a bit of a mystery during the first half of the book, as it was left as a mystery for the first half of the book, and we find out that she is the daughter of the Baron Harkonnen. See, the, the Bene Gesserit, in order to obfuscate the meddling in the bloodlines that they're doing, they do not tell the Bene Gesserit, specifically of the Bene Gesserit schools, who their parentage is, unless, you know, they're like the daughter of an emperor or something at that point. They tend to stay the daughter of the emperor, but they're still trained as a Bene Gesserit. That kind of thing. So, with in Jessica's case, even though the Baron Harkonnen is not that way inclined, he was somehow seduced once, and the Bene Gesserit woman that he had slept with gave birth to Jessica. She was not told her background or anything. And then she was married off to the Duke Leto. Well, not married off. She was given as a concubine or bought as a concubine. But they fell in love. And everything they did was through and for love. Which, from what I've read, becomes called basically uh, pulling a Jessica. Is is what it ends up being called. Uh, if you start to try to do things out of love in the Bene Gesserit schools. Which is silly. But yeah, so... Some nice subtleties is the mention of plant life. So Paul fairly early on notices that there's plants and there's birds and whatnot and doesn't really question it. He's just like, oh, cool. So plant life can survive out here. That's cool. Why don't they terraform? And then he just keeps asking why don't they terraform? Because there's a literal like terraforming satellites and whatnot that they, they use to help terraform planets, but that specifically has not been done for, for Arrakis and that's kind of a big question. The answer. So one, the big secrets. So the Emperor was involved in taking down the House of Atreides. He provided the Harkonnens with Sardaukar. Some super elite, near superhuman fighting machines that um, just absolutely mow through forces. This is fairly fast known within the, the Atreides house that that's likely what's going to happen. Because it was very obvious that the Emperor was kind of involved when the Emperor insisted that they, they go to Arrakis. 
so they assumed that Sardaukar were going to come in. So their plan was to counter the Sardaukar with Fremen, enlisting the local populace to help defend them, but they weren't able to execute their plan in time. Uh, the guild was also involved. We, again, learned this relatively fast. It, the guild is being bribed by the Fremen to keep the southern hemisphere, the, like the southern hemisphere of the planet, unknown by stating that it's too dangerous. That was because the planetologist was working amongst the Fremen to help try and slowly, but surely, terraform the planet in order to, well, make Arrakis green. To where Arrakis ha will have its own water cycle, eventually. You know, a plan that they won't see in their lifetimes and for many generations to come, but eventually it would come to fruition and there would be water flowing naturally on Arrakis. At least that was the plan. But the guild also was bribed because that's kind of the only way that the Harkonnens were able to get there in in such force. So the guild was involved probably because the guild wanted to be able to control the spice themselves. Paul's big plan to his trump card, he learns... So he, he tries to do what his mother did to prove that he is the Quasix Hatterach by drinking the waters of life and converting the poison into a not-so-deadly drug. He succeeds, but he is put into a three-week coma, and when he wakes up, he's like, oh, man, I, I did it. And they're like, kinda. You knocked out for three weeks, but you sure, man, you, you did it. But he is able to con take the water of life, put it over an explosive um, pre-spice mass, and by doing that, and if the pre-spice mass explodes with the waters of life on it, it would taint it, kill the little makers, or pretty much their their pre-sandworm, like sandworms. It would kill them, thus ending the life cycle of the sandworms, thus ending the, uh, well, the spice production, because spice was made by the worms. So he's holding that over the guild's head, but once he gets what he wants, he vows to bring green to Arrakis, but desert will have to... You know, stay and worms will have to stay in order for the spice to flow because, well, guild travel will have to still go because oh, it looks like he's going to be doing that jihad because he came to the realization as he was doing his fight that if he were to die there, it would happen anyway. If he were to die, if he were to live, no matter what, his legend would reach critical mass and is jihad, baby. So, yeah. I'm guessing that's what happens in in the the next ones, <laughs> Messiah. I, I know some of what happens in Messiah. It's a sh much shorter book, and I'll eventually get around to reading it, especially since that is supposedly what uh, Denny Villeneuve's plan is with the Dune series. He plans on it being a trilogy. Part one and part two are, of course, the the first book, but part three is supposed to be the second book. But he said that he did not want to touch the third book because that's where shit gets weird. And he's... He's right. He... Oh boy, is he right. Things get weird. <laughs> I've read vaguely what happens in the next books. And yeah. We'll look into it eventually. But I'm very happy that I finally read this. It is good. I watched a, a short that was talking about how, you know, oh, because of Dune coming out soon, a lot of people are going through and reading it for the first time. And he says... 
you know, don't be put off by it. Because the, the second and third book are some of the best out there. I don't know about that. And we'll see. But yeah, it, it's it's a bit weird. This book overall, I would say, is very good. There are just a lot of little small things that are really annoying. For example, perspective. Who are you following? Yes, you're following everyone. Anyone that's in a scene, you could theoretically fucking hop in their head in the middle of a goddamn paragraph. It's frustrating. You'll be following Paul, and then, oop, now you're with Jessica, and then, oop, now you're back with Paul, and now you're with Hawat, and now you're back with Silger, and, oop, now we're with Paul again. What's going on? I don't know. And then the time jumps get absolutely ridiculous at the end of the book. And the way that they tell you that it's been a time jump is also a little bit silly. They literally have to weave it into the conversation, or they have to weave it into a description. The Baron Harkonnen says, Huh, it's been two years since that gladiator fight. And then Thade's like, Yeah. Then at the end, he's like, Hmm, that looks like a four-year-old. Ah, so it's been four years now. Now we know. It, it's the, the previous two years, and then at some point between Paul's three-week nap and now, it's been two more years. <laughs> Yay. Uh... But yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, also, it at the end of a chapter, it might just jump to a different scene entirely, hanging out with the villains. That that just happens sometimes, and sometimes the chapter that when it when it's jumping away, it's actually jumping back in time to a different scene to get you caught back up. That happens a couple of times, and well, nice. It's like, hey, look, we're following a different thing from a different perspective for a bit. It gets a little bit annoying. Oh, right. And then each chapter, chapters aren't numbered, by the way, but each chapter starts with a little excerpt describing something or whatever. And they're all books by the Princess Irulian. And it actually kind of comes to a head at the very end of the book as a bit of a joke. Because literally every book mentioned in this is written by her. Like, uh... From In My Father's House by Princess Aurelian. Uh, find another chapter start. Oh, there's one. From The Wisdom of Muad'Dib by Princess Aurelian. Stilgar's Preface to Muad'Dib the Man by Princess Aurelian. So that is all we really know of Princess Aurelian for most of the book, though she shows up at the very end and Paul's like, I'm gonna marry her. For political reasons, because I don't love her. I love, I love Chani. But for political reasons, I must marry her. And like the last paragraph or so, let me pull it up real quick. That's part of Appendix 1. There we go. Jessica says, See that princess standing there, so haughty and confident? They say she has pretensions of a literary nature. Let us hope she finds solace in such things. She'll have little else. A bitter laugh escapes Jessica. Think on it, Chani. The princess will have the name. Yet she'll live less than a concubine, never to know a moment of tenderness from the man whom she is bound. That's Jessica pretty much trying to reassure Chani that Paul is not going to sleep with her. Because he says, hold on, a little bit earlier he says, yeah, so she asked for no title. And he says, I swear to you, he whispered, that you will need no title. That woman over there will be my wife, and you but a concubine, because this is a political thing. 
and we must weld peace out of this moment, enlist the great houses of the Landstrad. We must obey the forms, yet that princess shall have no more than my name, no child of mine, nor touch, nor softness of glance, nor instant of desire. And then Chani says, so you say now. And then that's when Jessica gives her the reassurance. And that's how the book ends. Like, literally, he's just like, I'm gonna marry her. And they're like, fine. And then the book ends. <laughs> so I, I have yet to see how things go. But yeah, essentially, by the end of the book, Paul has accepted that the jihad's likely to happen, though he's still kind of trying to ensure peace. But he's almost at this point stated that he's just gonna, he's just gonna let it happen. He, he feels that he has no control over it anymore. But that is for us to discover at a later date. So let's see, we are currently Monday the 19th. So next week, we will be talking about Dune Part 1, the movie adaptation of the first half or so of this book. Very exciting. And then that Friday, after Dune Part 1, will be the first kind of update of the new challenge on the RPG Hangout feed. So feel free to, to give that a look-see. That I announced, I, hopefully it came out on Friday. I recorded them all now, so hopefully when... When it comes out, it'll be on Friday. We'll see. But anywho, yeah, next week will be Dune Part 1, the movie. We'll be able to talk a lot more about, like, designs and whatnot and stuff. Maybe get into a little bit more nitty-gritty about the first half of what is covered by that movie. But hopefully you guys enjoyed this. If you did, feel free to give it a like, comment, and subscribe if you're listening to this on YouTube. Or rate and review it on any podcast catcher of your choice. But with that said, thank you guys once again so much for listening. And I will talk to you guys next week. Goodbye.